following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1. This morning we come to the end of chapter 1 of this glorious and yet brief letter. I trust that the Lord has a feast for us this morning from his word. My hope and desire as your unworthy shepherd this morning is that you would have a greater love for God's word by the time we leave this place and that there would be a greater devotion, commitment, and obsession with his word this morning, this word that is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path in this dark and perverted generation. His word is the closest thing we have to seeing his face right now. It's the most tangible thing we have in our possession to him. And so may we as his people abide in him and have his word abide in us that we might bear fruit until the day dawns. The title of this message is Until the Day Dawns. It's taken directly from verse 19. And so as we come this morning to verses 19 through 21, I want to begin by reading in verse 12 so that we get a better understanding of the overall context of the letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. The apostle writes, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. Grace community, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray one last time for help and illumination. I pray for wisdom and application and insight that we might be built up and edified. We ask in your son's name. The matter at hand that Peter is addressing is that there were false teachers in his day who were denying the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were also denying any coming judgment, which as we considered last week is very convenient for man in his rebellion against God to deny judgment, to deny accountability, ultimately to deny the truth of God's existence because in accepting and admitting and attesting to the fact that God is and is to come, we will stand before him. We are accountable to him. And so man has always sought to deny judgment. There have always been mockers. Think of the days of Noah. Can you imagine? Noah, we're told in 1 Peter, was a herald of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness. I have to believe that he was calling people to repent, to walk righteously before God, to trust God even as he and his unworthy family have been accepted by the God who justifies. And so mockers and scoffers have always been around denying judgment, denying the fact that we are accountable to God. And so Peter is addressing the claims of these false teachers who were denying the second coming and the coming judgment. I quickly remind you of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, where Peter says that you need to know this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They were denying any kind of future interruption of history any kind of brick wall that we would hit someday in history, they were denying all of that. Peter says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged or flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exists are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, right now, the present order is being reserved, guarded, protected until the day of judgment. As we come to this last section in chapter one, the wider paragraph begins in verse 16 and it runs all the way through verse 21. Last week, we looked at verses 16, 17, and 18, and the purpose of this paragraph is to counteract the claims of the false teachers by showing, number one, in verses 16 to 18, that the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the parousia, is certain in that Peter has already witnessed the glory of the second coming. He argues that the transfiguration of Christ, which you can read about in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, the transfiguration was a foretaste. It was a glimpse. It was a preview of Christ's second coming glory. It was a preview of Christ's coming in power to judge the living and the dead, as the creed says. 
to save his people and to judge the world. So Peter's saying it is going to happen because when we were on that holy mountain that day, we saw him coming in his kingdom. He came initially the first time as a humble slave to wash the feet of his disciples and to wash away the stains and the sins of his people. He came, as in John 13, to take the form of a servant and to wash his people. But the second time, he will come as a conquering king, showing no mercy in that day. The day of mercy is now. The day of his humiliation was then. The day of his exaltation is to come. And so Peter's saying we can be sure that these false teachers are speaking lies because we were eyewitnesses and ear witnesses of his coming glory, his coming majesty. That's the point of the transfiguration. The point of the transfiguration is not to show the deity of Christ, though we see that in, 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 in the whole account. The point of the transfiguration is to show that he will come again in glory and in judgment in his kingdom. The second purpose of this paragraph in verses 19 through 21 now is to show that the transfiguration that pointed forward to the second coming fully confirms the Old Testament prophecies regarding the end of the world and the consummation of all things. So Peter is saying in verses 16 through 18, we know he'll come again because we saw his glory on the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw it. We witnessed it. We heard the Father bear witness to the Son. But now what he says in verses 19, 20, and 21 is that the transfiguration confirms the reliability and the dependability and the trustworthiness of the Old Testament scriptures. You see, what Peter saw at the transfiguration attests to the fact that the prophecies of the Old Testament have already begun to see their fulfillment in the first coming of Christ and will reach their ultimate fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. That's Peter's point here. We have more fully confirmed now the realities that were spoken of in the Old Testament, the prophecies that were laid down in the Old Testament. And so as we come to these verses this morning, 19, 20, and 21, just three verses, I want to point out to you five observations that we see in this passage. Central to the passage is the prophetic word, the Old Testament scriptures. And regarding this prophetic word, we see five things. We see the full confirmation of the prophetic word. We see the absolute necessity of the prophetic word. We see the primary function of the prophetic word. We see the coming replacement of the prophetic word. And fifthly, we see the divine origin of the prophetic word in verses 20 and 21. And so as we begin, let's consider the full confirmation of the prophetic word. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, and, or so, or for, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. I've spoken with a few seminary grads recently, and um, he just shows my ignorance, um, 
When I told them that I was preaching through Second Peter, both of them were taken aback. These guys are really good with Greek, by the way. And they were taken aback and said, that's a brave you know, feat that you're, you're teaching through Second Peter. And you know, when you read commentaries, you, you, you do understand that most commentators agree that one of the most difficult epistles in terms of the Greek in the New Testament is Second Peter because Peter says things, words things in different ways um, that it leaves a number of interpretations open for um, consideration. Well, when it comes to this phrase and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, there are basically two interpretations within the history of the church. Number one, the first interpretation says this, that the prophetic word or the scriptures of the Old Testament are more reliable and more dependable than Peter's eyewitness testimony of the transfiguration. The idea goes something like this. Peter says, we saw his glory. We heard the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw Jesus giving us a preview of his second coming glory. But better than that, we have the Old Testament. Better than that, we have the reliability of the Old Testament scriptures. They're more fully dependable, more fully confirmed in what they teach us, as if Peter is downplaying the transfiguration and the experience there. And I would argue, as I would argue that Peter is not pitting verses 19, 20, and 21 against verses 16 to 18. I don't think that Peter's saying, yeah, the glory of the transfiguration was great, but more than that, we have the Old Testament. That's not what he's doing here. Otherwise, he's going to just cancel out his argument in verses 16, 17, and 18. Hey, we were with him on the holy mountain. We heard that very voice born from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of his majesty. To only then go in verses 19 through 21 and say, but that's really insignificant compared to the Old Testament scriptures. That's not what Peter's doing here. Then there's the second interpretation that's possible, which I think is the correct one, namely that the transfiguration confirms the reliability and the dependability of the prophetic word. The transfiguration shows that what the prophetic word said and laid down back in the Old Testament is fully dependable and reliable. And so in the transfiguration, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That's the idea. The prophetic word, because of the transfiguration, is that much more dependable and reliable because what it predicted has begun to be fulfilled. That's the idea here. The prophetic word, I love that phrase. That's basically a summary of the entire Old Testament. Prophetic has to do with prophecies, predictions, projections of the future. And so when we talk about, when Peter's talking about the prophetic word, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And these Old Testament scriptures ultimately point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ, both his first coming and his second coming. And what we have here is a little bit more precious than I think what Peter's readers had in the first century. You see, when Peter was talking to them, they didn't have completed canons. They didn't have the completed Old Testament and New Testament in one library that they could hold in their lap like we do. 66 books, 39 of Old Testament and 27 New Testament. They didn't have that. 
They maybe had bits and pieces of the Old Testament, but we have something greater than they had. And so I'm going to go as far as to say that the prophetic word, the Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, we have the whole thing. We have the whole thing. It ultimately points to Christ. And he says something remarkable about the prophetic word of the Old Testament, which we can look at as ultimately the whole canon of Scripture. He says it's fully confirmed. It's fully confirmed. It's a word that means reliable. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, he uses the same word when he says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. That's the same word Peter uses here for fully confirmed. It's one word in the Greek. Hebrews 3.14, when the writer says, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The word firm is the same word that Peter uses here, fully confirmed. The Old Testament scriptures are firm. They're solid. They're reliable. 2 Corinthians 1.7, our hope for you is unshaken, same word that Peter uses. We have the prophetic word, unshaken. They spoke, and we saw the fulfillment in the coming of Christ, which was a preview of the second coming of Christ. In Romans 4.16, when we're talking about Abraham, Paul says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. The word guaranteed is the same word Peter uses here for fully confirmed. We have the prophetic word guaranteed, reliable, dependable, trustworthy, unshakable, firm. It just goes to show that what the psalmist said in Psalm 19 still holds true that the testimony of Yahweh is sure, sure, certain, dependable. You can throw your life, you can throw your eternity on it. It's sure. And so we see here, first of all, the full confirmation of the prophetic word. But Peter goes on and he calls our attention next to the absolute necessity of the prophetic word. The absolute necessity of the prophetic word. Look at 19b. to which you will do well to pay attention. That's why it's needed. We're called to pay attention to this prophetic word. We're called to pay attention to the scriptures. You will do well. You will do good, Peter says, to pay attention to this. The word pay attention in the Greek means to be alert, to watch out for. So he's saying, and I'm just going to give you some synonyms for what this word actually signifies. You will do well to be alert to the prophetic word. You will do well to watch out for the prophetic word. You will do well to be on guard over the prophetic word. You will, be go- you will, be- you will do well to be aware of it, to consider it carefully, to continue to believe it, to firmly hold to the prophetic word. It's a very strong word. It means to be devoted to something. When Paul gave instructions to Timothy in his absence, he said, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's the same word that Peter uses here. You will do well to devote yourself to the prophetic word, the Old Testament Scriptures. And now that we have the New Testament to all of Scripture, you will do well to devote yourself to Scripture. 
It's the same word that the writer of Hebrews uses in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's what Peter's saying here. And I think perhaps the strongest word in the New Testament in terms of how it's translated is in 1 Timothy 3, 8 where it's translated as the word addicted, addicted. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, and here's our word, not addicted to much wine. Peter is saying you will do well to be addicted to the prophetic word. You will do well to be addicted to Scripture. You will do well to form a habit of addiction to God's word. God's calling us to be addicted to his word, wholly obsessed with his word. By the way, this is the primary task of the Great Commission. Jesus said, make disciples by the gospel, mark them by baptism, and see to it that they mature. How? By calling them to observe all that I have commanded you. That observance is what we're talking about, observing everything he has said. Observing everything he has done. Observing everything God has said. Old Testament and New Testament. All authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus said, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Peter says, we have in the transfiguration the Old Testament scriptures more fully confirmed. And you will do well to be addicted to that word, to be devoted to that word, to observe that word, to watch out for that word, to consider it carefully, to eat it and sleep it and drink it, Peter says. You will do well to make scripture your best friend. You see, friends, God is always pointing us back to his word. And there's an ever-increasing temptation, I can tell you, that is thrown at us preachers and pastors. We are constantly told that times are changing and people are changing and, and, and even truth is changing. And so it's thrown upon guys like myself to come up with something new, to come up with something better, something more creative. And yet, Paul and Peter and John, all of the New Testament and Old Testament writers are calling us back, back to the old word, back to the prophetic word, back to the scriptures. Paul says to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself, be addicted to this one thing, the public reading of scripture. Until I come? Who knows when Paul was going to actually be reunited with Timothy? But he said, even if I never come, basically, don't leave this post. That's amazing. Pastors are called to bring the old word to ever-changing times. The old word to supposedly ever-changing people, which I don't believe people change. I believe we become inventors of evil, like Romans 1 says. But in terms of the nature of man... Man in his lost state, man in his natural state, man 
born at enmity against God, enmity with God, does not change. There's nothing new under the sun. We just become more creative at inventing ways of sin. And so the old solution will always be the best solution. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Peter says, you will do well to pay attention to the scriptures. You will do well to pay attention to the scriptures. Peter's aware of the danger that these people were facing. There were false teachers who secretly were bringing in destructive heresies, and Peter says, devote yourself to the prophetic word. Keep your heart and your nose and your eyes in the scripture. Keep yourself in God's word. The word converts the soul. It's the word of God that makes the simple wise. It's the word of God that rejoices the heart. It's the word of God that enlightens our eyes. The word of the Lord endures forever. It keeps our ways pure. It keeps us from sin. The prophetic word of the Old and New Testament revives us, strengthens us. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It gives us life. It it imparts light and understanding to the simple. The word of God is hated and feared by Satan, Mark 4.15. The word of the Lord will never pass away. It sanctifies us, John 17, 17. It's like fire, Jeremiah says. It's like a hammer that shatters rocks and pieces. The word of the Lord is like a sword that cuts and pierces hearts. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. It's sweeter than honey and sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. It nourishes us, Isaiah 55, as rain and snow nourish the earth. It accomplishes God's purposes and succeeds in the things for which God sends it. It doesn't return void ever. The word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. This word that you have in your possession, Christian, pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's the sword of the spirit. It builds us up and gives us the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul says that the word of God is at work effectively in you who believe. It's at work in you. It doesn't lie dormant in you. It's released in you and it does its work as the sword of the spirit. It's the instrument by which people are regenerated. It brings life to the dead and the hopeless. It gives us victory over the evil one, 1 John 2.14. It equips the saints for the work of ministry. The word of God does these things. And that's why Peter says you will do well to pay attention to it, to be devoted to it, to carefully consider it, and to be addicted to it. It builds up the body of Christ. It matures and establishes us. It has effectively cleansed us. It heals and delivers us from destruction. Psalm 107 verse 20. It's able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. It's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. Categories that we find ourselves constantly in need of. Depending if you're here today and you need correction. You're here tomorrow and you need encouragement. The word of God will do that. It it equips God's servants. It equips us for every good work. Deuteronomy 8.3 says it's what we're to live by. Luke 19.48 says it's what we're to hang upon. It's to be received. It's to be trembled at. It's to be hoped in. 
It's to be trusted. It's to be made known. It's to be declared clearly. It's to be heralded. It's to be unfolded. It's to dwell in us richly. Colossians 3.16, the word of God, according to Psalm 119.148, is to be our meditation. It's to be desired more than earthly treasures. It's the word that will judge the wicked on the last day. It's the word that engenders saving faith in the human heart. It's no empty word, Deuteronomy 32.47, but it's our very life. It's no empty word. It points us ultimately to Christ. It brings about fruit in the lives of those who, believe, who, who cling to him. It's to be praised and celebrated, and it's, to be, it's regarded by God to be just as sacred as his own name. Psalm 138, verse 2. Peter says, you will do well to pay attention to this, to be devoted to this. Next, we come to consider not just the full confirmation of this word and the absolute necessity of the prophetic word, but third, the function of the prophetic word. The function of the prophetic word. Notice what Peter goes on to say. To which you will do well to pay attention, now listen, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. It's a lamp Shining in a dark place. That's the function of the word. It's a lamp. It shines. It makes visible. That's what the word shine means here in the Greek. It makes clear. It enables vision. It enables sight. This is what scripture is for God's people in this present evil dark world. It's a lamp. There's, there's several words for lamp in the Greek. Um. It's not the word used for a torch, you know, for like a pilgrim on a journey. The word lamp here means a small lamp that you'd put inside a room filled with oil and have a little wick on it. It's, it's that kind of a lamp that just lights up a room. Because we're in a dark place, Peter says, he's speaking metaphorically, you will do well to be addicted to God's word because it's a lamp that shines, makes clear, makes visible this dark place in which we live. It's a lamp shining. We see in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. What is this light? Thank God for Hebrew parallelism. It imparts understanding to the simple. It imparts understanding to the simple. Psalm 19, verse 8. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. You will do well to pay attention to the scriptures. It's a lamp to your feet. It's a light to your path. It's light for your darkness. And notice what he says about this present world. He says it's a dark place. There's no light in this world. There's no light apart from the word of the Lord, which imparts light to the eyes and to the soul and to the heart. A dark place. Darkness is really the absence of light, right? This room will grow dark tonight because there will be no light in it. Darkness in Scripture is, and what's crazy is when you look up this word dark in the New Testament, 
It has to do with moral filth. This is a lamp that shines in a place of moral filth. That's where we live. And that's where we're called to live. Jesus didn't pray for us to be taken out of the world, but that we would be kept while we're in the world. And while we're in this world, not living as monks, trying to separate from the world, while we live here and live among people in the darkness, our lamp, our help, our greatest friend is the scripture. The scriptures. Darkness also signifies not only the absence of God, but the ignorance of God. Those who are ignorant of God. If you read Ephesians chapter 4, you talk about people who are darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them. That was us before conversion. Paul says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. In fact, conversion is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as God coming and shedding the light of his knowledge in our darkened hearts. We were dark. We, we, the, the God, we were, there was no, no fellowship with God who is light, and in him is no darkness at all. We were children of darkness. We reveled in the darkness. We rebelled in the darkness. And yet God came into the dungeon, dark dungeon of our sin and our alienation, and he shined the light of his truth in us, and he brought us out of darkness, and as Peter says in his first letter, into his marvelous light. And if we say that we know him, John says we ought to walk in the light as he is in the light. How do we walk in the light? Pay attention to the scripture as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We walk in the light when we walk in the word. When the word is on our lips, when the word is on our hearts, when the word is in our, our, our memory, in our brains, when, when it's what we eat, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When we're saturated in the word, our whole body is full of light. And we don't stumble in darkness. If we abide in the light, if we abide in his word. So we see the function of the prophetic word. It's a lamp given to the church in this present age to shine in a dark place so that we can see. It tells us who we are. It tells us of dangers. It tells us who God is. Psalm 19 says, who can discern his errors? Meaning not one of us can discern when we're wrong at times, but we need the word of God and its objective truth to shine upon us and in us to show us where we're wrong. We're like cars who have a number of blind spots. We're in danger because of blind spots in us. And yet the word as it's in us, it corrects us and it trains us and it rebukes us and it corrects us in the ways of God. And so we see the function of the prophetic word, which again, I'm arguing is not just now the Old Testament scriptures. That's what it was for Peter's day, but it's now the completion of the New Testament it's a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, we come fourthly to consider not just the full confirmation of the prophetic word, the absolute necessity of the prophetic word, the function of the prophetic word, but now fourthly, Peter alludes to the coming replacement of the prophetic word. Look at 19c, if you will. 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, the prophetic word is temporary. The scriptures that we have in our possession are temporary. Now, in one sense, we're told they endure forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. But in terms of their function right now for us as lamp, a lamp shining in a dark place, we're not always going to have this guide because we're not always going to need this guide. When we are glorified and when Christ returns and the kingdom is consummated and when God finishes the work that he began in us, we're not going to need a lamp shining in a dark place because there will be no dark place. And so while Peter is arguing for the temporary nature of the prophetic word, the temporary nature of scripture, I would also make the argument that Peter's arguing for the precious nature of the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. You see, when something is temporary in this world, it's often precious. Precious. Some of you see these documentaries of, you know, these... um, these flowers that bloom like once every X amount of years. And there's people who catch that flower blooming right then and there with like a, a slow motion camera. And they, they watch it begin to bud and to flower and then it's gone, it withers. Those things in life that are most like they're, they're short and transient and temporary, often the most precious things. Those, those, those shooting stars that light up the sky, you wanna catch it right then and there because it's there and then it's gone. But the same can be said about a sunrise or a sunset. I was amazed. I was, uh, you know, you just have to soak it in sometimes. If I, even if I'm running late to something and I'm enthralled and ravished by a beautiful sunrise over the Oregon Mountains with colors that will never be that color again and cloud formations that will never be that way again, you just have to stop and snap a picture. And even the picture doesn't do it justice. But I, I did that recently last week, and I think it was Monday. And I was amazed. By the time I got back into the car and, 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 and drove like 30 seconds, the colors had faded. The colors were gone. The brilliance was gone. The brightness was gone. Same with the sunset. Those things that are so temporary, the things that are so so precious oftentimes. And I would argue that because of the temporary nature of scripture being a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, we ought to regard it all the more precious. We ought to regard it all the more beautiful. What a a wonderful guide we have in the scriptures, the God-breathed scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Just listen to what scripture is here out of Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, Solomon says, keep your father's commandment, which we know to be the word of God, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. That's essentially what Peter is saying. You will do well to be addicted to the scriptures. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. And listen, when we do that, when we pay attention, as Peter is saying, when we devote ourselves to scripture, to memorizing it, to studying it, to reading it, to eating it, to drinking it. Listen to the result. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, 
they will talk with you. That's so sweet. In other words, when you get up from the study, when you put your Bible down, when you begin to walk and when you begin to lie down, when you begin to awake, no matter what you're doing, the point is that you're not in the act of studying the word, you're not in the act of eating the word, but because you've done that previously, as you go about your day, as you awake, as you go about your daily duties as a mom, as a dad, as an employee, as a husband, as a wife, if you've done your due diligence to obey what Peter's saying here, to pay attention to the scriptures, to devote yourself to the scriptures, well, those times when you're not able to be in the word deliberately, intentionally, guess what? The word will still instruct you. When you walk, they'll guide you. When you lie down, they'll direct you. When you awake, they'll talk with you. They'll watch over you. They'll lead you. What a temporary friend we have in the scriptures. A temporary friend to walk with us, to guide us, to warn us of dangers over here and dangers lurking in this corner of our soul. The coming replacement of the prophetic word is the consummation of all things. Notice what he says again. Until the day dawns. There's no definite article there in the Greek, so it's literally until day dawns. We know ultimately he's referring to the day of the Lord. As as you look later on in chapter 3, verse 10, he, he gets to the main point of the whole argument. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's really what Peter is preparing his readers for is ultimately the day of the Lord, the day that the the false teachers were denying. The coming replacement for the scriptures will be the day of the Lord when we see him in all of his brilliance and effulgence and resplendence and glory. Scripture as our light, as our guide, is a temporary friend until the God of the word confronts us once and for all. You see, right now we have the word of God that will one day be replaced by the God of the word in our lives. When we see him face to face, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Until day dawns, meaning we're in the night. Remember verse 19b said, we're in a dark place, but we're waiting for day We're waiting for the day. This would have meant something pretty significant to Peter's original audience here because they didn't have street lights like we do today. And so the darkness was often trembled at. The darkness was often a a time for marauders and robbers and evil people to do what they did because they could get away with it. That's why Jesus oftentimes in his parables talked about the godless being thrown out to outer darkness outside of the feast, outside of the party, outside of the festival. It was outer darkness where danger was. Right now, Scripture tells us that we're in the night. We're, I, I hope that we are like, you know, three in the morning, closer to four in the morning until the day dawns in just a few hours. I don't know where we're at in terms of the night, eschatologically in God's timeline. But regardless Until Christ returns, it's night. 
And what happens at night is, well, people do and behave as though God's not here. And we're tempted to look away from this lamp to those over here who were lurking, doing dark things, and to those over here who were deviously working evil. And we're to stay close to that lamp where we can see everything, everything in us, everything around us, and everything coming. We're to remain in the light as he is in the light until the day dawns. That is, until the sunrise, until those first beams come over the horizon. He's referring to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when he will bring in and usher in a new day, an endless day. We're told in later chapters that there will be no night because the Lord will be our light. There's going to be no morning or night or it'll all be day. And day is coming, Peter says, until day dawns, until day unleashes upon this present evil world and ushers in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Until that day, he says, hold fast to the prophetic word. Until the day dawns, and notice, secondly, the morning star rises in your hearts. So there's two things happening here. When Christ returns, it'll be an objective, every eye will see it kind of a thing, world history changing, or I should say coming to its climax, but then there's something also going to happen within the hearts of God's people. He says, when he comes, when he returns, the morning star will rise in our hearts. You see, when the Bible often refers to the second coming of Christ, It's often spoken of on a cosmic scale, right? We read in chapter 6 of Revelation that the kings of the earth will hide themselves in the caves, begging the mountains to crush them, to hide them from the face of Christ. We're told what's going to happen on a global scale. Every eye will see him, Revelation 1. But we're also told in little places like this what's going to happen, not just globally, but internally here in the heart. When he returns with his mighty angels, he will also rise in our hearts. Now, again, this is highly metaphorical language. The morning star, Tom Schreiner writes, was a name for Venus in the ancient world. But the reference here is almost certainly to the coming of Jesus Christ. When you read in Numbers chapter 24, verse 7, you have this prophecy. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And as Schreiner points out, the text goes on to say that God's enemies will be crushed, which fits the eschatological cast of Peter's writing and the judgment awaiting the opponents. Peter said that the morning star rises while Numbers 24, 17 in the Septuagint says a star will arise. Now, Peter's obviously referring to the second coming of Christ and what's going to happen in the people of God when he returns. Some people say that the morning star rising in the hearts of God's people is a a picture of joy. Not necessarily of Jesus Christ. But it's like in his presence, there is fullness 
of joy. There can be no joy apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning star is referred to later on in the book of Revelation to refer to Jesus Christ. He actually, actually calls himself the bright morning star. Schreiner goes on and says, when Jesus comes, we will not need the prophetic word to shine in a dark place, this sinful world. Then our hearts will be enlightened by the morning star himself, and that to which prophecy points will have arrived. It is not incompatible to speak of an eschatological event and its interior impact. He emphasizes that the knowledge of God that shines upon us in conversion will reach its consummation at the second coming. You see, we're told in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that in conversion, God begins to shine the light of his truth, the light of knowledge in us. But you see, when the consummation comes, the end of all things, that light that began to shine in conversion will reach its climax, will reach its culmination, will reach its consummation. And there will be no darkness in us anymore. The Bible calls that glorification. When we see him, we will be like him. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Jesus taught in Matthew 13 that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So yes, when he comes, he will make all things new. All around us, brightness, but within us, he will shine. The morning star himself, Christ, will be formed in us fully and thoroughly and comprehensively, exhaustively. We will be like him. Remember, isn't that the goal of sanctification? Isn't that the goal of election? Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. He foreknew us that he might predestine us that we might be what? Conformed to the image of Christ, the morning star. When he returns, he will rise in our hearts and permeate our entire being with his marvelous light. And there will be no need to look to any exterior lamp any longer because we will be with him and see him as he is. Well, now we come lastly to the divine origin of the prophetic word. The divine origin of the prophetic word. Verse 20 says, knowing this. So again, what's the main imperative here? What's the main command here? In fact, many have pointed to verse 19 as the main point of Peter's letter. The main point of Peter's letter is pay attention to God's word while you're in this dark place. Pay attention to it. Be devoted to it. Be addicted to it. Knowing this, verse 20, First of all, that no prophecy, no prediction, no projection of the future of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, some people believe that Peter's attacking the false teachers who came with their own interpretations, but that really doesn't fit the argument here. Peter's arguing that we should hold fast to God's word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and morning, the morning star rises in our hearts and we're glorified with Christ. And as we do that, he says, you need to know this first of all. It would make no sense for him to go and talk about the false teachers now. He's saying, hold fast to the word because you're to know this, that no prophecy, no element of scripture 
ever came from someone's own interpretation. The word interpretation here is, it means to release something, to loose something, to untie something. No prophecy was ever untied. No prophecy was ever loosed or released. The idea is to make plain by someone's own effort. And really what Peter's talking about here is not necessarily the interpretation itself, but the whole package, right? The prophet received something from God. He wrote about it. And in his writing about it, that's basically his interpretation. So ultimately we're talking about the divine origin of scripture. Peter's saying, this is where scripture comes from. This is why you can hold it fast because it didn't come from the prophet's interpretation. As much as I discourage the NIV because they, they, they take liberty to kind of translate. Uh, I'm sorry, they take liberty to interpret in their translation instead of inter- in translating the, the actual words. They've interpreted the passage, I think, correctly, even though they should have translated it, if that makes sense. They basically say that no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. That's what he's talking about here. Scripture did not originate with the prophet. And that's what we need to understand about God's word. Peter's now talking about the divine origin, where it came from, the divine origin of Scripture. It didn't arise in Moses. It didn't arise in Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. That's oftentimes how the Bible is falsely portrayed in our world today, is that the Bible is just a bunch of religious language from guys who climbed up an ivory tower, their own Babel, if you will, their own Tower of Babel to try to get close to heaven and to try to formulate documents and words that could, you know, lay a guilt trip on people and make them feel like they need to trust in a higher power. He says, no, that's not where Scripture came from. Scripture came, look at verse 21. For no prophecy, he hammers home the reality even more. He's saying the same thing in verse 20 and in 21. He just goes a little bit harder in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, Again, get the, get the big picture here. The transfiguration fully confirms that Christ will return. No matter what these false teachers are saying regarding their denial of the second coming of Christ, Peter says, no, we saw his second coming glory. And in seeing that second coming glory, we see the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the prophetic word to which you will do well to devote yourselves to until day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing where scripture came from, knowing where it comes from. It doesn't come from the will of men. It comes from the spirit of God moving human writers to write what they wrote. The divine origin of scripture is rooted in God, the spirit. So really we see the entire work of the Trinity here in this passage, we see 
the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured in his second coming glory. We hear the voice born from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We see that we hear the father speaking and now we see that all of this confirms what the spirit gave us early on in the Old Testament. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, it could be that Peter is alluding to his fisherman days. Uh, the word carried along here literally means to be carried along the way a, a boat would be carried along by the wind. Or he could not be referring to that. We don't know for sure. But it is an interesting thought. Men spoke. Get that. Men spoke. By the Holy Spirit. You see, we don't believe in the doctrine of dictation, where, you know, the writers of the Bible were somehow zapped and then possessed by the Spirit, and they just, of their, of, of uh, you know, contrary to their will, their, their hand just kind of stuck out like that, and they're just writing, and they're like, whoa, I, I don't know what I'm writing, I don't know what I'm writing. There's an element of truth to the fact that, like, as First Peter chapter 1, verses 12 10, 11, and 12 say that they, didn't, they understood that they weren't serving themselves. They were serving us, and they fully didn't understand what they were writing. Nevertheless, they were writing it. They spoke. And so it's important to understand that we don't believe in the doctrine of dictation. We believe in the doctrine of inspiration, that God was writing through them while they were fully aware of what they were writing. They were fully aware of their powers of reason and thinking and argument. That's why John sounds like John. I mean, even if, even if you're familiar with the Bible, you know, just for a few years, if someone were to come up here and start reading from 1 John or 2 John or 3 John, you would know if you've addicted yourself to Scripture, if you're addicted to Scripture, right? If you're, if you're, if you're devoted to Scripture, like Peter says, if you're paying attention to Scripture, you would know that that's not Peter speaking. You would know that that's not Paul speaking. You would know it's not David. You would know it's not Moses. You would definitely know it's not Ezekiel. It's John, simple Greek John. Now, if somebody came up and started reading Paul, you would understand that this is Paul. He talks about faith a lot. He talks about righteousness a lot. He talks about justification a lot. Why? Because it's Paul. But it's fully Paul, and it's fully the Holy Spirit. You see, we, we can think of Scripture much like the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into this world fully God and fully man. The Bible is fully God and fully man. And we don't want to ever confuse the two or diminish the one so that we can accentuate the other. Well, it's just a little bit man, but it's fully God. No, it is fully man. Men of God spoke. They reasoned. They argued. They exercised the powers of poetry and song and lament. And they put together orderly accounts like Luke did for Theophilus, both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. I sought to produce for you, Theophilus, an orderly account of everything Jesus began to do and teach. And so you have technical guys and then you have very simple guys. But Scripture is fully God and fully and truly man. And that, I think, is intended to give us an appreciation for Scripture, for, 
for, for, for learning to discern and hear Peter's favorite words and learning to discern and hear Paul's favorite words and learning to discern John's favorite words helps us to know God more because men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, as we come to the end here this morning, church, you will do well to pay attention to what you have heard, to not look for something new, to not look for a new twist, to not look for a a fascinatingly new interpretation. You are called to devote yourself to what God has given you. This is a temporary friend given to be your lamp and your guide in this dark place until this night of sin is over and day everlasting eternal day dawns when Christ returns and you find not only everything externally lighting up with his light and his effulgence and his brilliance and his magnificence, but you find everything within you brilliantly lit up to be filled with him, with his light, with his his majestic brilliance. Cling to the old word Hold fast to it. And you can live with, we won't call it optimism, we'll call it faith and we'll call it hope. That, as Paul says, the night is far spent and the day is at hand. And so where are you this morning in terms of the lamp? Have you put a a bushel over it? Is the lamp over here and you're living in this dark corner of the room? Or are you close to the lamp? allowing the lamp to shine in you and all around you and to expose everything about you and around you? Do you praise God for his word? Do you realize that this is a temporary friend that as you store it up, as you eat it and drink it and sleep it and make it your life's obsession, that as you go about your day, the word is talking with you, instructing you, guiding you, leading you, convicting you, stirring up hope in you, leading you to humble yourself, leading you to throw yourself in prayer before God and his throne of grace. You see, the word of God is effectively working in those who believe, Paul says. And so let us devote ourselves to it. I don't have anything new for you this morning. I don't have anything creative for you this morning. I point you to the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, and I say, Camp there, live there, sink your roots there. Let that be your food, let that be your drink as you hope and anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory. If you're here and you're not a Christian, consider your dark state right now. The fact that God is absent from your thinking just shows that you're in the darkness. You might not be physically in the darkness, but your mind is in darkness because you do not know the God who has given you life and breath and everything. You're refusing the truth that will bring you into the light and leave you into the light and lead you everlastingly into God's marvelous light. So I call you to turn from your sins, turn from your darkness, and come with the rest of us who are anticipating the full day dawning when we will see him face to face. Let's pray.